0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Preem Mahadevan and I research on organized crime and terrorism in South Asia. Over the next 70 minutes or so, we will discuss the relationship between crime and conflict in Pakistan. According to the Global Organized Crime Index, Pakistan is ranked at 47th place. That means it is within the top quarter of countries that are affected by organized crime. However, it is at the bottom of that quarter, which provides grounds for optimism. The OC Index lists criminal actors in the country, including state-embedded actors, transnational smuggling networks, and mafia-style groups that are hierarchical and territorially focused. Conflict provides a cover for militant groups to become mafia-style groups. It allows them to develop a means of financial sustenance at a time when governments are increasingly targeting overt channels of terrorist funding. Some might remember that for a brief period of time, ISIS was the world's richest terrorist group, and that was because of its control over territory. When a militant organization controls territory, it can impose so-called taxes and exercise quasi-governmental functions. While focusing on violent non-state actors, we must not forget the impact that elite corruption has on criminal economies. Impunity at the top translates into fatalism at the bottom. In Pakistan, one of the most powerful mafias is the so-called land mafia, which often consists of business interests with strong, strong state links seizing real estate for investment purposes. At the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, nearing a decade since its announcement, it is time to take stock of how organized crime in the country will be affected by the creation of new infrastructure. Also, what will be the impact on local communities? How will they be dislocated? Pakistanis over the last year have been trying to reach Europe in sizable numbers, often through irregular routes. The tragic death of several hundred Pakistanis in the Mediterranean in June is a reminder that notwithstanding bureaucratic jargon, there is real human suffering caused by criminality. We are privileged today to have some of the most knowledgeable experts on illicit economies in South Asia with us. I will introduce them in the order in which they will speak. Our first speaker will be Mrs. Francisca Marino an Italian journalist with Stringer Asia. She has written a book about the insurgency in Balochistan. Her understanding of Diaspora Network's role in bringing Pakistani migrants across the Mediterranean is unparalleled. Our second speaker will be Mr. Taha Siddiqui, an award-winning journalist. He has reported on crime, conflict, and terrorism at very real risk to his life. In 2018, he was subject to a kidnapping and possible assassination attempt in Islamabad which he only very narrowly survived. He now lives in exile in Paris, where he is the founder of the Dissident Club, a cultural space dedicated to the dissidents of the world. Our last speaker will be Mr. Junaid Qureshi, the director of the European Foundation for South Asian Studies. We look to him for insights on the broader linkages between crime and terrorism in South Asia. A very warm welcome to you all. My first question is to Ms. Marino. Ma'am, Pakistan and the broader region the Afpak region is part of the drug-producing Golden Crescent. There has been a long-simmering insurgency in Baluchistan province in particular, but we know very little about smuggling rackets that occur there. There is a disconnect between the narrative on drug trafficking and on political militancy in Balochistan. Can you give us an overview of what commodities besides drugs are smuggled through Baluchistan and by whom? Ms. Marino, over to you.
1: So the short answer is... Um, beside drug, the main smuggling goods are fuel and human beings. Um short answer. Long answer is giving a bit of context to this. Um 10th, the past 10th of October, the actual caretaker prime minister of Pakistan um Mr. Kakar, who, by the way, is from Balochistan, said that, and this is an admission for the first time, that 27,000 vehicles were going through Balochistan for smuggling fuel from from Iran with the help of local officials. Now, uh, the context is that true. Uh, there are places along the border where the 80% of people there are just surviving with smuggling because because there are no job, they have no jobs, they have no future, they have no other ways to um, to survive. But Kakar added that uh, the excuse of no jobs, is just an excuse. Now, the gentleman uh, is somebody who said also that during all these years in Balochistan, only 50 people disappeared instead of the tens of thousands that we know disappear every year. So, okay, uh, it, it is what it is, but it is true. There's a whole economy based on smuggling, smuggling fuel from Iran, smuggling not only drugs, but also goods like uh, dry fruit, uh, uh, clothes, uh, spare parts of things from from Afghanistan. There is a whole economy on this because simply it is the only economy people along the border have. Uh, Don't forget Balochistan, The 71%, according to international uh, surveys, 71% of of Balochistan lives beside the line of poverty, uh, better, with less than $2 per day. The the percentage raises to 85% when you go to rural areas, which are exactly the areas along the border, they simply, they have no other way for living. And yes, is, uh, the, the problem is a big one. Um, when it comes to fuel or to money, foreign currency also, uh, there's another market for that. The other one, the biggest one in, uh, in the past few years, Is the human smuggling, which is not to be confused with trafficking. Trafficking is a different thing. Uh, Smuggling is uh, is done on voluntary base. I mean, people paying to be taken across the borders. Um, In the past few years, yes, according to official data, between 30,000 and 40,000 Pakistanis uh, went through that route, the route goes through Baluchistan. Even though only a small amount of trafficking is done, at least is uh, is um, is materially done, but not owned by Baluch themselves. Is mainly Punjabis, um, but the the main route for people smuggling through Pakistan is through Balochistan. It is through Balochistan. And another funny thing, because I, I get the data from Italy, because many of these people arrive in Italy. Um, the, the funny thing is also that very few Baluch actually use that route to get out of the country and arrive here a very small percentage of Baluch, a very small percentage of Kashmiris, very small percentage of, of people, actually, in need to leave the country. The main ethnicity is, again, Punjabis. Um, the reason for this could be also that uh, uh, safe, uh, and when I say safe, uh, uh, is uh, a... a is not what we call safe, but in that way, safe passage to Europe through Balochistan, then Iran, then uh, you, you can take different routes, but to Europe costs between three and $7,000. Baluch simply don't have that much money. Uh, but, but, not even in the wildest dreams, they do have it except that small part of residents of the region, which are, of course, smuggling, includes also bribing. Bribing of uh, police, bribing of guards, and requires the connivance. Of them, but you know the situation of law and order in Baluchistan. It is what it is. Uh, don't forget, Baluchistan. You were you were quoting militancy. Fine, there's that. But it, the other actors are that's squads uh, who are given enfranchising by the army. Uh, the, the the control of areas of the land the frontier courts the army itself all of them have their part in their share on the illegal criminal market all of them otherwise would not be possible uh, there is another kind of smuggling uh, which is uh, uh, readily quoted it is uh, it is um, overmining and uh, it comes from the mines. Mind Baluch don't get jobs there, and the mines are basically owned by Chinese um, officers, of course, in condition of anonymity. Uh, they will tell you they they find trucks overloaded, um, but the records, the, it, it is not on records. All that stuff goes. Through Karachi to China. The other thing are rare minerals, rare metals. For that, Pakistan, the Pakistani government don't get a penny because they are out of all the agreements. Uh, But again, they go. Through the smuggling route from Baluchistan to Karachi, from Karachi to China. Um, in any place where the situation of law and order it is what it is, practically does not exist. Don't forget, Baluchistan is an occupied nation. Baluchistan is an occupied nation. Baluchistan is ruled by the army. Baluch people have no jobs, no way to survive of course, you recur to illegal ways of earning a living. Uh, I don't know if somebody remembers from movies also or from theater plays, Immediately after the war in Italy, Naples was uh, was a kind of um, stereotype uh, of smuggling, of people surviving smuggling cigarettes. But those people could not survive in any other way. This is, human trafficking is a big business. Human trafficking is one of the biggest business Ever um, again cannot be done without the connivance of the of the people in charge of of law and order. Um, Laws are there, but they pretend. But but then the point is, on the field you pretend not to see because you are bribed. But this is part. Everything is part of a wider problem which touches. The situation of Balochistan, Taj is also the, 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 you were saying one of the most, uh, one of the biggest problem is land grabbing. Who owns the biggest portion of land in Pakistan, not only in Balochistan, all over Pakistan, who are the owners and the developers of real estate and land acquisition, the army so is uh, the ones who actually should be caring for implementing law and order but you know the the, the situation especially in baluchistan it is so it, it, it is difficult to say who who has to, to who suppose who's wrong who's right uh, sipc made the situation worse because baluch have been deprived, have been deprived not only of their land, but again, even more further of, of, of their way of survival. Guadar, in Guadar, they have been cut out from the sea, from the, the, they were fishermen. They cannot do it anymore because Chinese put uh, 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 wires in uh, huge parts of the city. There's no access. The only one with access are are Chinese and then you know they developed, but they did not develop for Baluch. They developed for uh, for uh, for Chinese, for um, rich people, golf clubs, fantastic beaches, and they are trying to to sell it as the next Dubai. But it's not Dubai. People are starving. The region is totally neglected and deprived, whatever they say. Oh, by the way, what happened yesterday in Balochistan fell the, the 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 spare part of a missile test Pakistan did. Where did they do it? In Balochistan, because they don't care for the people. So, yes, and they some way allowed that route of human smuggling.
0: Since we were coming to the topic of human smuggling, I wanted to uh, to sort of ask a question, if I may, to Mr. Siddiqui uh, in connection with this, because we are looking, one of the things we look at in the GI is about diaspora involvement in criminality. So if I may uh, uh, just pose a question to Mr. Siddiqui at this point. So can can you tell us, can you outline for us what kind of illegal activities do members of the Pakistani diaspora within the EU engage in? Hi, Prem. Thank
2: you for having me, first of all. So basically, I mean, when it comes to um, looking into the illegal activities, especially in Europe, uh, there are a few things that we need to keep in mind. Uh, Firstly, uh, is the issue of, uh, of course, as you were mentioning, and and as uh, Marina was mentioning about the human trafficking issue, uh, we have, um, and, and we've seen that in recent years, and even, you know, there's, there's statistics available, which say that, Uh, the illegal human smuggling coming on from North Africa into Europe. Uh, One of the biggest populations of that or the biggest number of people that are coming in are Pakistanis uh, that are boarding, uh, you know, illegal uh, migrant ships from uh, countries like Libya and uh, trying to enter Europe. Uh, So that's one of the issues. And this human smuggling chain uh, is all the way, of course, not restricted and limited to the Libyan mafia, but also there is involvement of the Pakistani uh, human smugglers and traffickers uh, with also, you know, a corruption involved of the uh, government officials, etc. So there is definitely that aspect of human smuggling uh, and this human smuggling chain that we see all the way from Pakistan uh, into Europe through North Africa, uh, which is basically the predominant route that the Pakistanis are choosing. Uh, And the mafia that are involved in it are not just human smuggling mafia, but there are also the... Uh, mafia which are uh, you know uh, uh, involved in this are, are are loan sharks for example uh, because you know some uh, we, we we do know that these people who are coming they take loans from local uh, you know uh, loan sharks who then exploit them for different reasons and for different uh, you know uh, for for their own different advantages even i when i was in pakistan i used to report on this about how loan sharks were using Uh, you know, vulnerable Pakistanis uh, to force them into other sort of criminal activities once they are indebted to them. Uh, So, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, militant Islamist groups which are involved in these loan shark practices, which provide, uh, you know, um, uh, these sort of illegal loans for people to then use that money to, to, to smuggle themselves into Europe. And it's a large quantity of some which locally people cannot afford to themselves gather. So that's one aspect of you know uh, illegal activity that we see in Europe originating from pakistan uh, the other activity that we need to also keep in mind and and, and look into is the activity about uh, you know the uh, uh, the issue of uh, um, uh, money laundering uh, or money laundering or rather i would say it's it's what what is called hawala or hundi uh, in, in local languages uh, which basically uh, uh, talks about sending money illegally through pakistan from pakistan Or returning it to Pakistan. Uh, Recently, only there was a big gang of uh, Pakistanis that was caught in Paris that uh, had been sending uh, millions of euros back home uh, through this illegal channel. Uh, And the problem with it is that this is not just uh, you know petty criminals who are using these hawala or hundi networks. Uh, In fact, uh, these hawala and hundi networks can be traced to terror activities uh, originating in for example in kashmir there was um, you know uh, when, when there was a uh, bombing I, I i believe it was the uri attack or one of the attacks that happened in in kashmir uh, recent in uh, a couple of years ago uh, there was traces of people that were involved in using this uh, hundi hawala network uh, coming through uh, for coming to italy so so there was the money was sent to italy and then it was received back into kashmir and and so these hawala hundi networks are also uh, you know, quite active. And again, are you being used not just by the criminal mafia, or, or criminal enterprises, which are involved in, you know, just uh, uh, drug smuggling, or, uh, you know, human smuggling, but also militant Islamist activity, which is more alarming, because uh, then these, you know, this, this network poses, uh, uh, the, these kind of activities pose a great threat uh, to the European soil, to uh, to European, you know, safety and security uh, when it comes to uh, the issue of countering terrorism. So these are two main aspects, I would say, uh, human smuggling and this uh, sort of inflow and outflow of money uh, that can be linked back to Pakistan when it comes to uh, the criminal activity linked to
0: Europe. Thank you very much, Mr. Siddiqui. That was extremely helpful. And actually, it's, it's a very good lead-in to... Uh, the next question, which I have, the next opening question, which is for Mr. Qureshi. Um, so, there have been reports lately that the EU is looking to cooperate with Pakistan against transnational organized crime, but particularly against human smuggling. Um, that is the really the high priority. Now, Ms. Marino and Mr. Siddiqui have talked about corruption as a crucial factor in the illicit economy in Pakistan. When we look at corruption more generally, what role does it seem to play in the smuggling of any commodity that comes out of Pakistan? And where I'm talking here specifically at the level of state actors uh, in within Pakistan. Over to you, sir.
3: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Prem. It's uh, good to see familiar faces, Taha and uh, Francesca. Look, corruption as such in our part of the world, in South Asia, is basically embedded in our culture, um, you know. And just to give you an example of that, is that when you know, in South Asia, most of the marriages take place through arranged marriages. And whenever, you know, the, the girl's uh, family goes to the boy who has a government job, they ask for his salary. And then the next question is, okay, well, that's his official salary. What does he earn on top of it? You know, so <laughs> this, is, this is an embedded thing uh, in our culture um and you know when you did your introduction you were talking about the biggest mafia being the land mafia in uh, in uh, in pakistan especially um it's it's a pity that um miss um, Sadiqa did not join because she has written a marvelous book on the biggest mafia in Pakistan, which is the army in my opinion. Um, I guess the book is Military Inc um, explaining in how many businesses the army is involved. Um, so and as as Taha also mentioned, the fact that you know people are economically and and Francesca also mentioned they're economically very deprived because of lack of opportunities. Uh, a lack of business, lack of jobs. Um, yeah, then you get into the sphere of, you know, um, lenders uh, and then anything you have to get done, uh, you have to get done by paying extra. Um, so this then translates onto the organized uh, crime level. Um, Again, to give you an example, for example, you know, when we talk about and Taha mentioned that when we talk about Kashmir, well, the biggest, uh, you know, if you have been to the LOC, it's quite a guarded uh, place. But the biggest reason why people come back and forth is because of corruption. Uh, It's a huge money making business for everyone. The guides earn money, uh, the army earn money, the villagers earn earn money on top of it. And um, like was mentioned earlier as well. Uh, with these militant Islamist groups, one of the things which they also do is uh, charitable work, so-called charitable work, which involves huge sums of money. Um, <clears throat> I remember in the, what was it? I think 2005, there was this earthquake in Kashmir and the services of Lashkar-e-Toyba, muhammad were actually uh, taken by human rights organizations because they knew uh, the place uh, much better. <laughs> Um, so you know, to say how much of a role does it play uh, corruption in in, in, in in this setting? Well, it's 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 probably it's difficult to to put a number to it, but um, yeah, one thing we can establish is that it's an embedded part of our culture. So whether that's normal activity or whether it's uh, criminal activity, uh, it it is it is encouraged actually, and there's no way. You you can act you can you can bypass it um, in everything you know. Getting a birth certificate takes money. Anything gets it takes money. You know uh, we call it in our language. You call it chai. Huh? You have to pay money for the tea. Um, so this you know this builds upon um, in in every section of society especially in in criminal uh, activity. Uh, well, you know it's it's inherently a corrupt practice. You know so to then dissect how much of it is corruption and how much of it is, you know, non-corrupt. Well, it inherently is a corrupt practice. So uh, it's it's fully owned uh, by corruption and it it allows these criminal organizations to actually, um, you know, operate uh, by, you know, by support of state actors. And there's a difference here between the militant Islamist operators and the criminal operators. Because don't forget that the Islamist militant operators in Pakistan are allowed to operate because of ideological foundations, while the criminal organizations are allowed to operate for profitable foundations. So it makes money. So these are two, while they converge at some point of time, these organizations together, but uh, the support of the state for these actors uh, has different premises. So Um, Again, you know, we talked in the morning about Dawood Ibrahim, I think that's a bit of a, you know, much of Dawood Ibrahim part is also because, you know, it's just a new uh, nuance to India, you know, Uh, so that's one of the reasons, but many of these, um, you know, criminal organizations are allowed to operate because they pay, uh, they pay money, Uh, you know, uh, again, uh, Taha mentioned Hawala, Hundi, well, there's another term, which is Hafta, uh, that is that is paid uh, to to state actors. And then you have these, you know, Islamist militant terrorist organizations, they uh, get their support on the ideological foundation. So there's a small dis- distinction over there. Thank you very much,
0: Mr. Qureshi. Uh, actually, there's a lot of uh, for us to discuss now. And uh, I mean, I'm conscious of the time. So I would first, I, I'd invite the speakers to pose questions to each other. And we would uh, go in the reverse order of the speakers. So all questions will be collected and then we'll have a first discussion round among the speakers. Thereafter, we would engage with audience questions. If the audience have any questions, please could you enter them in the Q&A box. Uh, begin, beginning with you, sir, Mr. Kureshi. do you have a question for Mr. Siddiqui or Ms. Marino?
3: Yeah, well, uh, no, I've, I've, I've engaged with both of them. So I know pretty much where, where they stand. But what is always interesting to hear is of course uh Taha's uh you know extraordinary story of how he fled uh Pakistan, how he was chased, and how the state, you know, just for the crime of reporting and speaking the truth, um how he was uh you know, how his life was made miserable and he was almost almost kidnapped. But that that you know that I have he has he has told me and I've read it many times over. Um but my question would be is that um you know uh, to taha you're, you're the, the the media in pakistan um do you think that because you you see certain um you know you see certain shifts time and over again you see for example imran khan was of course arrested uh, and then you had a lot of uh, talk on the media uh, and then two days later when they, they attacked military installations, then the media made a 180 degree turn. So, you know, from your field, how much do you think, since you've left Pakistan, do you think the media has become more free or has it actually declined? Is it is it is it, is it better today since you've left or is it actually much, much, much worse?
0: Thank you, Mr. Qureshi. If, uh, if I may, I would suggest we collect all the questions on this round, then we can have the discussion between ourselves first. So, Mr. Siddiqui, would you have a question for Mr. Qureshi or Ms. Marino? Um, I mean, uh, one of the things that I would like to,
2: I mean, anyone can respond uh, is, uh, that I would like to ask is about the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Junaid was mentioning about how um, there is a sort of uh, uh, cross-border movement uh, into Kashmir. Uh, we've we've heard that recently these tactics of cross-border movements have changed, uh, and now uh, between India and Pakistan, or the you know the the so-called uh, line of uh, seize, uh, the uh, ceasefire, uh, the uh, control line on between the two two countries and the occupied territory of Kashmir, uh, there is a lot of um, uh, uh, mo- uh, movement not. Uh, physically but uh, you know there's financial movement and also recently there's been use of drones for example uh, to or to move uh, you know uh, even money weapons uh, and support so uh, how much of uh, that uh, is you know uh, being reported upon, how much of that is being talked about, if one of the participants could highlight about the activities of drones. Uh, And uh, earlier there was a discussion about Balochistan and specifically about how Balochistan's sort of economy is involved in drug smuggling or human smuggling. Uh, You know, there are some elements like, for example, uh, locally, there are names of uh, local politicians which are involved with the Pakistani military, uh, uh, which are using these human smuggling routes uh, to do do drug smuggling, in fact. So if uh, one of the participants, I I guess, uh, you know, uh, Francesca could probably uh, highlight that about how... Um, these routes are being used uh, to uh, by you know drug smugglers, which are the same routes being used by human smugglers and which have a protection of the Pakistan military.
0: Thank you, Mr. Siddiqui. Um finally, Ms. Marino. Do you have a question for Mr. Kureshi or Mr. Siddiqui?
1: Um yeah, I would uh, I would quickly say one thing, and um, starting from here. Um actually um, Faha was saying earlier that the, 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 money, the money laundering, the money smuggling from Europe back to Pakistan. Yes, through, through Italy is actually being funded partially with SIM cards and some money, the Mumbai attack and, and, and the Uri attack. In the case of the Uri attack, they, the money has been tracked directly there. Uh, so, yes, um, for Taha, I would I would ask how the diaspora is coping there. I mean, uh, here we have Lashkarita and cells in Brescia. Uh, we have Tabligis. We have uh, a number of organizations that border being illegal also. Um, It is the same in France. And um, for Junai, yes, corruption is endemic. But uh, I remember many years ago, uh, uh, somebody was was a case of very small case of corruption, something that's not done properly. So this fellow was telling me, Madam, you know, I have three daughters, Uh, if we split, the difference everybody will be happy it, the at the small level the corruption might have roots also in the in the way the society is
0: structured
1: and the very poor salaries say police officers
0: small employees earn thank you ms marino um Mr Qureshi would you like to answer first
3: yeah uh, no uh, the the first question which was posed uh, by uh, taha about the loc and the drones i think there was i think 3 or 3 years ago uh, there was an attack on uh, in jammu with a drone it was actually a drone attack what we see now yes the loc is quite you know it's quite secured now uh, uh, i think india uh, from you know the 1990s and then to 2008 and then 2008 onwards i think india has invested a lot of money and resources and personnel into securing this uh, this this loc over there but then again yes indeed you have the um, you have the drones and what we see now there is a, a different of uh, difference of operation because of the LOC being quite secure now there's online radicalization. So you know um, in in for example in Kashmir, you have people who are online trained um, and then they get their weapons from you know uh, the criminal scene there and it's basically lone wolves who go and attack you have also seen say, uh, apart from a few, instances but uh, the terror incidents in Kashmir over the past few years have actually been targeted killings uh, and not you know not the kind of the the Uri and the Pathan court and and those kind of attacks have not actually happened because it takes a lot of planning it takes a lot of people but this this uh, targeted killings are basically done on online. They just go on a channel and they actually also get indoctrinated there, but also get training on how to operate a weapon. And the other thing is which is very you know alarming is the huge rise in uh drug use, especially in in, 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 in a place like Kashmir, uh being mostly Muslim, uh, you know, so society is also not, you know, it's it's not a European free society where, you know, like in Paris or in Amsterdam, you can have drugs. Freely, it's quite a conservative society. But I was just reading a few days ago that Uh, 1.3 million people just in the Kashmir Valley are drug addicts. Um, And out of them, and that's even more alarming, especially, and it's also very surprising because of this, because of the conservative society, is that out of them, 25% are girls. Um, So that's, that's, but these drones are now many times used to bring over drugs and we had that in Punjab as well there have been many uh, instances where drones have been uh, you know captured with drugs uh, on it so um, so yeah this is a new type of warfare the online radicalization and uh, and uh, and the drones and uh, to come to francesca's question about the corruption that's uh, yeah that's you know that's absolutely true i think the with the uh, the the salaries of people Uh, are, of course, you know, that also encourages them maybe to go, you know, on on, on a corruption path because it's maybe not enough. I do know that, for example, um, many of the law enforcement officers in India now are linked to the pay commissions of the center government. So, and the center government has every now and then they have a revision of these pay commissions. So the salary there, but then, yeah, it does matter whether you live, in, um, you know, in Bihar or you live in a metropolitan city like Delhi, uh, but yeah, those salaries have, you know, it, it is going in a way that it, it people are recognizing that, but indeed, yeah, and that's also because we have a lot of, in our region, we have a lot of non-institutionalized, you know, uh, people working, uh, so not, labor laws are not, you know, almost non-existent except for government jobs. But in government jobs, yeah, I do see the recognition that salaries are too low, and this needs to be uh, improved.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Miss um, Marino, would you like to respond to Mr. Siddiqui's question about human smuggling? Um, mm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to say something about Kashmir. Uh, first of all, make clear of which of which Kashmir we are talking about. So about uh, about.
3: Kashmir, Indian Kashmir. So uh, um, I was there in. The, the funny part is there is only one Kashmir. <laughs> yes, of course, of course, <laughs> but, but, but it's
1: politically divided. Yes. <laughs> so we were we were talking of, and the one who's victim of of jihadists is the Indian Kashmir, in uh, in the in in the Pakistani part. People are victims not only of jihadi but also of the of, of the army and so on. Um, the as you were saying, the situation in Indian Kashmir is very much improved. Not only because Indians invested in counterterrorism, they actually invested in development. And yes, what you were saying about the the right. Radicalization of youth is true. Internet, but you know, trust me, what I've seen uh, two months ago was a total different place from what we were used to see. And the way to fight extremism and uh, and especially people who want to take back uh, a society of thousand years, it is not the military deterrence, not so much, but it is development. So said this, I'll go to Balochistan, because basically the the problem is the same, development. While India has been developing Kashmir, Balochistan is left in that condition. So human smuggling, yes, it goes through there, like drug smuggling goes through there, Uh, Law and order agencies say we cannot patrol uh, a border so long, uh, uh, 1,200 kilometers with Iran, uh, with with Afghanistan, uh, 900 something with Iran. Yes, it's impossible to patrol. Yes, Iran uh, is trying in in their own way, by the way, abusing Baloch, insistent Balochistan also, to stop the smuggling, but it will never stop until the people of the country will be put in condition to earn their living. Balochistan is rich, potentially rich, is one of the richest regions in terms of minerals of Pakistan, gas, gold, copper, uh, rare elements, uh, Everything, but Baluch don't benefit of nothing of this. The only ones who benefit are the army and the Chinese and the politics, but the politics and 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 organized crime in Baluchistan are very much linked. Uh, To go back to uh, the current caretaker prime minister, he is from Balochistan there are pictures around of him sitting happily with a gentleman called Shafiq Mengal Shafiq Mengal is one of the owners of the of the death squad chief but in uh, he, he has been allowed more than once to to uh, to contest elections Shafiq Mengal, a criminal. So the, there's
0: not it, it, there's not an easy answer to it. Thank you, Ms. Marino. Um, if I may come to Mr. Siddiqui. Uh, sir, uh, Mr. Qureshi had asked you a question about the freedom of the press in Pakistan and he mentioned your own um, Horror, horrifying experience, actually. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how the freedom of the press or the state of the press in Pakistan affects one's ability to actually get an accurate picture of criminal trends in the country and, and what your own assessment is of how things are going. Are they improving or getting worse?
2: Well, uh, definitely. I mean, since I've left uh, in 2018, uh, things uh, from what I see from, uh, you know, monitoring the Press Freedom Index... Uh, monitoring and and talking to journalists on ground because I've had, you know, more than 15 years of experience reporting from Pakistan. So I have many friends on ground. Uh, What we now say in Pakistan is that journalism is dead. You know, uh, there was a time when journalists were being killed and we had, uh, you know, we have over 100 journalists since Uh, 2001, uh, since 9-11, when, you know, this whole idea of war and terror came to Pakistan. Uh, Since then, there's been a documentation of journalists being killed because since then there's been a spike of journalists being killed and over 100 journalists have been killed and none of those cases have been resolved except for one case in which uh, which was a case of an American journalist uh, Daniel Pearl uh, who was uh, killed in uh, I believe in 2002 uh, by uh, Islamist uh, militant terrorists and uh, uh, the persons that were involved in it recently uh, they were actually um, uh, uh, freed by the courts uh, in Karachi. so that was also very alarming to see that the people who were involved in this killing of a journalist and other terror activities and criminal activities were allowed to be to go free but, Uh, then the government intervened and have kept them under some preventive uh, uh, detention. Uh, So they're still in jail, but uh, technically... Uh, the, the court cases or the, the, the convictions against them have been overturned. So, I mean, press freedom doesn't really exist in Pakistan. There's micromanagement by the Pakistan military. Uh, the ISPR, which is called the, the military media wing, which is called the ISPR, uh, manages every little small aspect of it. And, uh, you know, all the news coming out from uh, troubled areas of Pakistan, which we're supposed to report on, uh, there, there's no independent access to it. So, for example, in Balochistan, the human smuggling elements or the human trafficking elements we cannot, uh, or, or the drug smuggling elements, uh, those rep- uh, we do not have access to reporting to them. Even when I was in Pakistan, I went to Baluchistan to report from there. Uh, but at my personal risk and at a lot of uh, personal threats, and eventually, as you know, as it was mentioned in initially also, I, I was attacked by um, men that I believe were from the Pakistan military and I was forced into exile. Uh, That brings me to another aspect of, you know, transnational uh, crime or transnational oppression uh, that I would like to highlight here is that Pakistan is not only involved in these kind of transnational crimes like human smuggling, drug trafficking, money laundering, etc. But also uh, it it is involved in and we have recently found out that its involvement in transnational repression by going beyond its borders and and, uh, targeting uh, dissidents uh, like me. Uh, and others in exile. I mean, uh, Dr. Aisha Siddika couldn't join us today, but she's also a victim of it. Uh, we've seen that there was a Pakistani blogger who lives in Netherlands, uh, Vakas Braya, who was also a victim of it. There was actually an assassination plot. Uh, to kill uh, Bakaz guraya uh, and uh, th- uh, fortunately uh, the assassin who was a pakistani british man was caught by uh, the british police and he was convicted uh, earlier this year uh, and was sentenced uh, in, by the british courts and there was evidence that found that we found that linked him uh, to uh, pakistani you know uh, handlers uh, as of yet the British government, the UK government, uh, the Dutch government haven't pursued it uh, with the Pakistani government, from what we know publicly, uh, who these Pakistani handlers were. Uh, and from what we know, the Pakistani handlers were supposed to give this assassin money to kill Vakas Guraya, not just this Pakistani blogger who's in exile, but there were, there were uh, WhatsApp chats that were recovered from this assassin, which uh, talked about him targeting people in, in France. And I've been told by the French intelligence here and by the American intelligence that my name is on a kill list and I could be targeted even in exile. So this, these criminal syndicates of the Pakistani uh, you know uh, state are operating on European soil also. And we're seeing an increase uh, of transnational repression beyond the Pakistani borders. And we need to uh, look into it as... Criminal activity. Uh, There are two cases that I would like to mention also at this point in time, which is of, uh, you know, Sergeant Baloch in Sweden and Karima Baloch in Canada. Those both were from Balochistan and they were both targeted uh, from what we believe because they had mysterious deaths and the police, I think because they were political refugees, the police did not investigate much into their cases because political refugees do not have much political capital uh, and so their cases were open and shut very quickly but from what we understand, they were basically targeted and Sajid Balos was uh, someone who had been investigating in Pakistan the drugs and the human smuggling syndicate uh, or uh, originating from Balochistan, and there is a person called Imam Bhil uh, who was named also as uh, one of the drug barons by the Obama drug baron list of 2011 or 12, I believe. Uh, his name is Imam Bhil, and you can look it up. And Imam Bhil uh, uh, himself and his children, uh, like his one of his child, is now in the parliament. So he has parliamentary connections. He is also involved in land grabbing in Balochistan with the help of Pakistan military. He's involved in a housing society uh, that he's building with the help of Pakistan military. He's also involved in in kicking out people from Gawadar, which is now being occupied by China. Uh, So we do know that Imam Bheel is is, is this person who uh, Sajid Baloch was reporting on. And we do believe that it could have been the drugs. International drug syndicate that could have targeted uh, uh, Sergeant Baloch uh, in uh, in Sweden. And uh, when we talk about you know the previous case that I mentioned about Wakaz Guraya, the reason why this assassin would be was caught was because there was a big heroin smuggling uh, you know uh, shipment that was caught coming into Netherlands. And from there, the, the people who were caught in this smuggling were Pakistani. And they started monitoring those Pakistani, uh, you know, uh, network of these drug smugglers. And from that, they found out that there was an assassin that was war- planning to kill a Pakistani dissident. So, we, you know, all of this is very connected. The drug smuggling, the human smuggling, uh, you know, syndicates and then transnational repression and, and crime uh, uh, beyond the Pakistani border and its linkages are all linked to the Pakistan military. So that's one thing that we need to highlight when we talk about, you know, freedoms that uh, people in exile even enjoy and or do not enjoy, actually. Because for me, for example, in Paris, I have to be careful. Many times I have I have had, uh, uh, you know, intimidations, uh, uh, you know, uh, intimidating uh, persons who are who have called me on the phone or have arrived at my dissident club here at the bar in Paris, uh, to intimidate me, and they have linkages to the Pakistan embassy. Uh, they, 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 see, and then back home also, uh, you know, where, uh, my, my, my family, my parents, uh, etc., have also been harassed, by intimidated, and been told that uh, they can reach to me in, pa- in Paris. Also, you know, the pa- uh, Pakistan military officials have uh, uh, invited my uh, so-called invited. I mean, I wouldn't say invited, but forced my parents to come into, you know, military safe houses where they have been harassed, would have been threatened. And so in that sense, we, we, we have to mention this, that, you know, just because I went into exile doesn't mean that the, 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 it, it's completely safe and absolutely safe. So we need to mention this uh, definitely. Uh, this this aspect. The second question that uh, Francesca had was about uh, the aspect of you know whether or not there are any sleeper cells in Paris w- when it comes to these militant uh, terrorist organizations. Uh, one of the things that we need to look into it is that you know, uh, and and one of the, one of the 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 the. Uh, Examples of this is that very recently, uh, I think it was last year or a year before that, uh, there was an attack in Paris uh, by a, a stabbing attack outside the Charlie Hebdo office. Now, the Charlie Hebdo is a satirical magazine which published the cartoons of uh, you know Muhammad satire cartoons of Muhammad and and because of that they have been threatened. They have had an attack in 2015. And then recently in 2021, I believe, there was an attack outside the Charlie Abdo, former office of Charlie Abdo, and two Parisians were people from uh, the French people were were stabbed by a Pakistani man of 25 year old who had been smuggled into the country uh, and who was radicalized online. So that online radicalization, as Junaid was talking about, uh, he was radicalized online to to go after these people. So there's this issue of you know a blasphemy uh, which which Pakistanis are radicalized for, and you know there's a big diaspora uh, living in in Europe which. Uh, um, uh, We've seen in recent past with this case of the Pakistani man in in Paris attacking, uh, you know, uh, two 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 French citizens uh, over the case of Charlie Hebdo and and you know avenging some sort of like blasphemy perceived blasphemy against Muhammad. So we've seen that that kind of radicalization is a new kind of uh, criminal or or uh, elements that we're seeing that we need to be aware of. Of course, then again, you know, there's the original or the 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 tra- the traditionals or so called the, the 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 historical uh you know uh, cells of the Jamaat-ud-Dawa Lashkar-e-Taiba which are involved in money laundering uh, which are spread across the, uh, across uh Europe or across the the western hemisphere which are involved in this money laundering or hundi hawala business uh and then we have seen that there are linkages to Kashmir attacks so of course there are these you know the uh, pockets of communities living in the, Uh, in in France also, uh, that uh, perhaps can be used for these kind of activities. But recent evidences suggest that not only these militant Islamist activities, but also, you know, uh, on ground, there are these, uh, you know, uh, criminal acts by Pakistani diaspora in attacking uh, the French citizens over perceived blasphemy, which is also an alarming trend uh, and we should be careful and be watchful about uh, in, in, in the future. So these are the two aspects that I would like to highlight uh, when it comes to uh, you know uh, the,
0: the questions that were posed to me. Thank you very much, Mr. Siddiqui. And uh, of course, what you said about the transnational repression is terrifying. I mean, your own story is, uh, I would say the fact that that you have persisted in, in reporting and in and, and telling the truth as and in shining light on these kinds of issues is truly commendable as it is for Ms. Marino and, you know, for Dr. Aisha Siddiqua Agha, who is not able to join us today. Um, we have some questions from the audience, actually. Uh, so, if I may begin, the first question is actually on Karachi. In the in the 2000s and the early 2010s, there was a, a fair amount of violence in Karachi, and uh, there was organized crime and terrorism over there, uh, sort of merging into a into a rather unpleasant mix. Now, it seems that the situation has stabilized considerably. Has this been because of effective security measures, or are there any other reasons behind the the notable? decline in violence in Karachi, uh, would anyone care to answer that, Mr. Siddiqui, yourself?
2: Uh, yes, I, I could take that question because I'm originally from Karachi uh, and I have reported from the city uh, a lot. Uh, in fact, I mean, this is a very pertinent question in the sense that, yes, this is true that uh, since the two th- late 2010s, uh, the kind of violence we saw in Karachi and I reported on it, investigated it, uh, that that kind of uh, incidence of violence have considerably gone down. Uh, the reason for this is that basically uh, what has happened is, is, is in late 2010s, what was happening at first to give a bit of a context of why there was criminal activity at that time. So this was uh, the time when Musharraf's government had gone out. It was the dictatorship of Musharraf, you know, in 2008, which had ended, and there was basically uh, uh, because of the, you know when 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 the Pakistan was phasing out of this dictatorship of Musharraf, the, we saw that you know the the systems collapsed because of course when there's a dictator. Uh, You know, systems are not built and it's one man show. And then when he left, um, you know, most of Pakistani systems in place collapsed. And because of that, we saw Karachi, which is the the economic hub of this country, uh, go into a lot of criminal activity, a a lot of, you know, uh, political violence, criminal violence, etc. And it peaked. Uh, And one of the reasons I, I think also it happened was because, Before that, the military-controlled or military-backed government was managing Karachi, and it had walked out uh, from Karachi after the dictatorship ended. So what happened was that uh, we saw this peaking of violence, but by 2013, there was an, an operation Uh, that started in Karachi and that operation was started by none other than the Pakistani Rangers which are again backed by the military and we've seen that you know this economic hub of uh, Karachi was taken over effectively by the Pakistani Rangers which are military run and they took over all of this criminal mafia in fact so they replaced the criminal mafia with themselves And now still the organized crime exists, the organized sort of criminal syndicates exist, but they operate under the patronage of the Pakistani rangers. So there's the water mafia, for example, in Karachi, which is very huge. Uh, There's the land mafia in Karachi, which is very huge. And both of these mafias operate with the blessings of the Pakistani military rangers. And the Pakistani rangers, uh, you know, uh, run by the military, tell them that we do not want any unwanted crime or unwanted uh, you know violence in the city so it's kind of a controlled managed situation that we see today in in karachi managed by the pakistani rangers who uh, take a share from these criminal syndicates and mafia and who control them because of course uh, you know they do not want to uh, to to pressure Karachi too much because if Karachi shuts down or if Karachi has a breakdown then the whole country's economy is, is uh, disturbed. So because of that uh, you know the, the, the Pakistani Rangers uh, are managing it in a better and more effective way but it doesn't mean that the the crime has gone away. The the crime continues to to stay there, uh, but it is just better managed by the Pakistani Rangers, uh, which have formed a sort of a partnership with these uh, local, uh, you know, uh, criminal elements, local criminal syndicates uh, operating in Karachi.
0: Thank you very much, Uh, we have just just about 10 minutes left, and uh, there is an interesting uh, two-part question in the Uh, From the audience. So, first part is Are there any recent developments or shifts in the types of crimes uh, or conflicts that Pakistan is experiencing? So, that's one part. I mean, what are the trends in criminality and conflict in Pakistan now? And the second part, actually, which is perhaps to end on an optimistic or a hopeful note, uh, is are there any examples of successful initiatives or strategy which have been aimed at reducing cl- crime or conflict in specific regions of Pakistan? Um, would anyone care to answer these questions for the first part?
1: I would for for the first part. See, as Taha was saying, uh, the the <laughs> crime and uh, uh, crime. Uh, it organized crime and, and there's a the name which has been badly mentioned, which is Dawood Ibrahim and uh, and, uh, uh, and his company. Uh, crime is strictly linked to the to the police and the state. Same way, terrorist organizations are linked to the state. So uh, uh, any shift, uh, yes. They, they um, in the past few few months, uh, um, there has been a, a, an, a, an increase in TTP attacks, but that's, you know, as uh, Hillary Clinton once was saying, you cannot, you cannot keep snakes in your backyard and then expecting they will bite all, only your neighbor. So this is the result of the years and years of 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 Pakistani policies Pakistani state policies being Pakistan being ruled by military officially or unofficially this is uh, this is just an outcome uh, the the link between organized crime and terrorism is even deeper because uh, because Yes, money laundering, charity, charity foundations, the 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 links also which had been proved back twenty five years ago between the Ibrahim and Al Qaeda. They were using the the smuggling routes to for drug smuggling, but with that money they were financing jihad. So it's uh, it's. Uh, it's very difficult to differentiate. And the other question was about the successful strategies in reducing crime. When the crime is, is committed, the other crimes we want to we want to start talking about kill and dump, enforce disappearances. <laughs> but, I mean, from where do we start? And all these crimes are committed by the state. Yes, using also proxies like petty criminals, but it's the state. So the, from, from, from where do we start? I, couldn't,
2: I can probably like to add to that uh, the second part of the question, if I may.
1: Yeah. So so basically,
2: I mean, you know, one of the things that I always say is that how do we effectively combat all of this? Because we have to have a solution. Uh, One of the solutions is that I think Pakistan is heavily dependent on foreign aid. Uh, It has, you know, know, uh, this IMF loan uh, ongoing, uh, you know, uh, there's the World Bank that is supporting the the U.S. government uh, uh, continuously gives Pakistan money. The European Union has, you know, this trade partnership with Pakistan. I think all of these international partnerships that Pakistan has with the West need to be subjected to conditions of, you know, Pakistan complying with international standards for Controlling crime for uh, we've seen that you know with the financial action task force that Pakistan has done some cosmetic steps on paper at least but we need more investigations by Western partners of Pakistan to look into Pakistan and see where pakistan is lacking and make them accountable and say that you know this aid that you're going to get or this loan that you're going to get will be conditional to you making changes and really ground changes the second aspect of what i think we need to sort of look into and inve- invest uh, when it comes to pakistan is the local police i think uh, the local police of course we do know that it's very corrupt or it's very you know right now broken the system is broken but i think To counter the hegemony of the Pakistan military, to counter the the hegemony of, you know, uh, how uh, Pakistan military uses itself as a law-enforcing, you know, uh, force in the country, which is not its job. We need to uh, you know, we need to increase the capacity, uh, we need to build the capacity of the Pakistani police to make them more effective at countering these things and they have the willpower because, you know, when I talk to the Pakistani police uh, who are still, you know, some of them are Uh, Friends, because I used to be, you know, uh, uh, report on them back in the day, Uh, so I still am in touch with them. Uh, The the civilian setup of the law enforcement in Pakistan. We can still have some hope for it because they do not have any vested interests in these sort of like, you know, human smuggling, human trafficking, uh, drug smuggling or or any of these kind of money laundering aspects because they want to, they have a civilian sort of, uh, you know, outlook and they want to sort of uh, look into uh, ensuring that the civilian uh, setups in the country or the, you know, the citizens are safe. So I think we need to build uh the uh, capacity of the pakistani police and focus on them and that's what the international partners should do also that instead of flowing the money towards the military or any of the military government uh, backed governments or you know the military uh, controlled uh, departments we should Uh, directly empower the Pakistani police
0: and hope that Pakistani police can deliver. Thank you very much, sir. Um, I've received a prompt that we need to finish in uh, less than five minutes. So, I would like to ask uh, Mr. Qureshi, do you have any uh, points, sir, because you turned your camera on. uh, I was wondering if you would like to add any?
3: Yeah, I actually align myself with whatever Francesca and, 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 and Taha said especially the fact that, you know, seeing a change, uh, and that is what Francesca actually mentioned, yeah, well, how do you expect a change when the state is involved itself? Uh, And then coming back to this is that what I said in the very beginning is that, of course, the state is involved due to profits, due to money, due to business interests. But to my mind, the Pakistani state is heavily involved because of ideological foundations, the ideological foundation of being a state built on a religion, which also means having an enemy just next door, which is not Muslim, while it's very ironic, because there are more Muslims in India than Pakistan, Uh, and then trying to create this one identity, while Pakistan, as you know, is, of course, different nations put together, and uh, a stamp on it that from now on, you're Pakistanis because you're Muslim. So while it's all, you know, this, 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 it, it basically converges the the fact that it's an ideological base, and then crime, terrorism, jihadism, Islamism is of course used for it. So it's it's very rightly said by Francesca. Do you expect a change when um, when the state is heavily involved? And like uh, Taha also said, the FATF did compel the Pakistanis to make some cosmetic changes, uh, I would say that what the international community should indeed do is to not take the foot off the pedal. Uh, this, this needs to be continually monitored and indeed putting conditions uh, like the UK is the one of the largest donors of Pakistan up until 2019, uh, it was in billions. So this is something where uh, you know, the international community ought for its own benefit uh, ought to take some steps.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Um, we are actually almost completely out of time now. Uh, are there any final points that anyone would like to say? Because, yes ma'am, please go ahead. We have just one minute. May I? Uh, yes, uh, about
1: the in- international community, at the end of the day, the bottom line of everybody with whom I discussed this thing is, but Pakistan is a nuclear state, and uh, 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 and uh, and uh, and the problem is, uh, what if the nuclear bomb goes in the hands of jihadis, of terrorist organizations, and this is the the basic blackmailing to the international community. I usually reply that the nuclear bomb is already in the hands of the biggest terrorist. Organization of the world, which is which is ISI, so it's <laughs> it's not really a blackmail, like but still, it's is <laughs> as we said, when the organized crime, the terrorism, and the law and order are all in the same in the hands of the same organization,
0: which is the state, what you want to do. Thank you, ma'am. That's uh, unfortunately a very accurate, but a rather depressing note to end this conversation. Uh, I would just like to thank all our distinguished panelists. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And I wish you yourselves and all our audience a very nice day ahead.